Bonjour, agus Chiadiv. Welcome to The Irish in Canada, the podcast exploring the histories and legacies of Irish immigrants and their Canadian descendants. I'm your host, Jane McGaughy. This is episode number six, The Body of Mary Boyd. Warning, this episode involves descriptions of mental illness, suicide, sexual violence, and traumatic events. Listener discretion is advised. History is almost entirely forgotten about Mary Boyd. She was only 19 when she died, so she didn't have very long to leave much of a mark on the historical records. History is cruel that way. It erases almost everyone it touches. I stumbled across Mary Boyd by accident. I never would have found out who she was, if not for a famous Toronto doctor deciding more than 150 years ago to publish his account of what happened to Mary. Not to remember her, of course, but to try to save his own reputation. Mary Boyd was an Irish Quebecer. Her father, Thomas, was a farmer in Gore Township, northwest of the island of Montreal. Thomas, his wife Sarah, and their first three children were all born in Ireland. But around 1842, the Boyds immigrated to Canada East. Mary was their second-to-last surviving child. Thomas later moved his family to present-day Kawartha Lakes in the province of Ontario. Mary went to work in Toronto for a well-to-do family, headed by one of Toronto's best-known physicians, Dr. Duncan Campbell. Mary was young. She was only 19 years old. People liked her. She was described as tall, pretty, smart, good at her job, and well-educated, quote, for her position in life, end quote. Dr. Campbell and his wife Matilda swore that Mary had been a lovely girl until the month of April, at which point she no longer seemed like herself. Some of you might know the old Japanese movie Rashomon. If you don't, no worries, because you're still probably familiar with its narrative device. The same story is told by several people in very different and often contradictory ways. Who's telling the truth? Who can you trust? These are questions that confront historians every day, piecing together the past from sources that don't always, or ever, agree. In 1868, this difficult, sensitive task fell to the coroner's court of Toronto. There are few common details that anchor the different versions of what happened to Mary. In late April, a servant boy heard splashing in the well on the Campbell property. Mary had tried to drown herself. Two days later, while in the house, she cut her throat. They treated her wounds, and she was then taken to the provincial lunatic asylum by Dr. Campbell and his 17-year-old son, Posey. Mary's asylum admission papers list religious excitement as the cause of her insanity. I've put them in the show notes. Finally, less than a week after arriving at the asylum, she died. Like so many Irish women in the 19th century, Mary had found a job as a maid in an upper-class household. She was known to the family. She was a daily fixture in their lives. What sets Mary apart, why we can even find her in the records, is the public scandal that eclipsed the personal tragedies of her short life. The first people interviewed at the inquest into the death of Mary Boyd 
were Matilda and Duncan Campbell. Mrs. Campbell spoke first. She swore that Mary had been of a, quote, religious turn of mind, end quote, and that the young woman had been in good health, but that, quote, I did not take alarm until she threw herself into the well. Upon asking why she had done this, she said it was better to be drowned than to be burnt, end quote. Mrs. Campbell added, quote, It was her wish to go to the asylum, as she had given so much trouble to the family, end quote. Because, heaven forbid, a young servant in distress might be an inconvenience. When he took the stand, Duncan Campbell corroborated all of his wife's information and then added a few more details. Apparently, weeks before the first suicide attempt, he had noticed Mary, quote, drifting into insanity. At times, she appeared perfectly well. At others, she talked as no sane person would talk, chiefly about death and hell, end quote. Then came the kicker, quote, She told my wife that her female condition was deranged. I used some remedies with a view of improving that condition, after which she was better, end quote. Dr. Campbell's remedies weren't as innocent as they sounded. On the second day of the inquest, Dr. Joseph Workman, the Irish-born medical superintendent of the asylum, took the stand. Although Mary was only in the asylum for five days before the wound became infected and she died, Workman gave special attention and care to her case. He spent time talking to her, he read to her, and tried to keep her calm. It was Workman's testimony that changed everything. Dr. Workman relayed a conversation that he had with Campbell about Mary's menstrual problems, that her period had stopped, and that, quote, the restoration of this function was most important, end quote. Dr. Campbell's solution was, quote, the application of galvanic excitement to the breast of the female and the other extremity to the os uteri, or mouth of the womb. After this, there appeared a discharge, end quote. To recap, in order to bring on her period, Duncan Campbell, a homeopathic doctor, attached electrodes or galvanic excitement to Mary's breasts and cervix and used shock therapy to cause menstruation. Even for the 1860s, this was not standard practice. Galvanic medicine was hotly debated, but to use it as a form of gynecological treatment was beyond the pale. Was Campbell's impromptu medical treatment administered in his home really because of some deep concern for his servant's erratic menstrual cycle? And then Dr. Workman delivered his truth bomb to the jury. That Campbell had told him that Mary was in love with Posey, Campbell's son, and that they had to get married. Mary had said that Posey had had, quote, sexual intercourse with her in her bed, end quote. But for Dr. Campbell, this couldn't be true and had to be a sign of her insanity. Workman testified that he had not conducted a gynecological exam while she was alive. Quote, I made no critical examination in the case of Mary Boyd, as I adopt a rule to treat all females as I should wish my own daughter to be treated. End quote. Working in Toronto, Mary was separated from her family in the Kawarthas, 
She never saw them again before she died. Perhaps this kindly Irish doctor provided some comfort and familiarity in the last days of her life. With that said, if Dr. Workman had given her a full pelvic examination, a lot of important questions might have been answered. Mary Boyd's autopsy revealed no marks of violence on her body except for the throat wound. However, Mary's hymen was almost entirely gone, although this did not necessarily mean that she was no longer a virgin. The version of events given by Jane McConaughey, one of the asylum's day nurses, added a new dimension to the mystery. Mary told Jane that, quote, Posey, Dr. Campbell's son, was the cause of her illness. She said she believed she was in the family way to him for six weeks, that on the 14th of March, the doctor and his son took her into a room and gave her medicine that burnt her inside. She said that Posey sinned and she sinned. She loved him so much. She said he would have married her, but the mother would not let him. End quote. Jane said that Mary clearly feared Dr. Campbell. Quote, when he left, she said, For God's sake, do not let him near me again. End quote. On the 6th of May, 1868, the coroner's jury at the Provincial Lunatic Asylum delivered their final verdict on the death of Mary Boyd. They found that, while temporarily insane, Mary had killed herself by cutting her throat with a carving knife. What I didn't expect to find at the end of the coroner's transcript was this edition clearly reprimanding Dr. Campbell. Quote, The jury impaneled in the case of Mary Boyd cannot part without recording their sense of the highly improper medical treatment pursued by Dr. Campbell towards the said deceased Mary Boyd. This action upon their part is based upon the evidence of high medical authority adduced in the course of a long and painful investigation of a very melancholy case of suicide. End quote. Following this rare public castigation from the jury, her body became embroiled in a very public fight. To understand how these two short sentences from a coroner's jury could be so explosive, we need to look at what else had happened in April of 1868, because there had been a lot. At the beginning of the month, Thomas Darcy McGee, the Irish-Canadian father of Confederation, had been assassinated in Ottawa, kicking off a panic about Fenianism. Those fears intensified when news came from Australia of the attempted assassination of Queen Victoria's son, Prince Alfred. At the same time, Canada's most notorious abortion trial had begun in Montreal. Robert Notman, brother of the famous photographer William Notman, was found guilty of procuring an abortion for a young woman he had made pregnant. He was sent to Kingston Penitentiary for 10 years. During the sentencing, the judge had admonished Notman, quote, Why did you not, after you had been tempted by that girl's beauty, after she had fallen, why did you not take her to your home and to your heart and make her a happy wife and a happy mother? In a country like ours, there are no social distinctions. She was worthy of you in every respect. End quote. 
If Mary Boyd had been pregnant, would the Campbells have received a similar admonishment? In a country that apparently had no formal class distinctions or social barriers, why couldn't a young servant girl become the next Mrs. Campbell? There is a huge difference between the idealism of this judge and the lived experience of 19th century Canadians separated by class and power. Mary Boyd didn't live in a dream world. The tragedy of her life was all too real. Newspaper coverage about anything sexual was very rare. Coming after weeks of articles filled with death, crime, sex, and abortion, this veiled suggestion of a doctor performing a clandestine abortion by electrocuting Mary's cervix was incendiary. Toronto's Telegraph newspaper doubled down on the abortion possibilities of the case, noting that if Dr. Campbell had believed there was even the slightest chance that she could have been pregnant, then his decision to use galvanism was a criminal act. The Globe, however, defended Dr. Campbell, alleging that, quote, the use of the galvanic battery had nothing to do with the girl's death, which was the sole matter for the jury to deal with, end quote. The leader newspaper portrayed Campbell as the victim of jealous medical rivals. Quote, because Dr. Campbell happens to be a practitioner of a different school from themselves, they should by such petty artifices seek to injure him in the eyes of the public. End quote. Campbell himself took personal offense, not only at his own name being bandied about in the press, but because, quote, there is a charge recorded against my son, a young man now preparing himself for the medical profession, which, if it could be believed, might interfere with his success in life. End quote. And so, Duncan Campbell began to write to the Toronto newspapers in the weeks after Mary's death. His five-page diatribe in the Daily Telegraph included discussions of painful menstruation, religious excitement, nymphomania, and erotomania, the latter defined as, quote, melancholy or madness that is caused by love, end quote. Given that definition, what do you make of the following passage in Campbell's letter? Quote, Mary Boyd never stated to me, nor to my wife, nor I am quite sure to anyone else, that she had had illicit intercourse with my son. I am as positive as it is possible for me to be that she died as she had lived, a spotless virgin. What she told my wife was not that she had carried on illicit connection with my son, but that she had been violated by him a month previous. End quote. Right. When I first read this, my jaw hit the desk. Was he really saying that instead of being in love with Mary, his son had raped her? And that was somehow better? It wasn't quite that. If Campbell believed that Mary was suffering from erotomania, this was his example of one of her sexual delusions. By framing it like this, Campbell thought he was both exonerating himself and his son. Alternatively, this could have been Mary bravely telling the truth, trusting that she would be believed by another woman, Mrs. Campbell. Upon hearing her allegation, 
Dr. Campbell wrote that he had performed an ad hoc pelvic exam and concluded that Mary's story wasn't true. Moreover, he swore that his son, quote, did not in any way encourage her infatuation, but felt perfectly indifferent to her, end quote. It was at this point that Dr. Joseph Workman also began to write to the newspapers. But before you picture an Irish knight in shining armor charging in, take a deep breath. Because Workman was not writing to protect Mary from Campbell's slander and cheap insinuations. He was more interested in scoring points, dismissing Campbell's judgment as a doctor, and defending his own medical reputation. He, too, focused on Mary Boyd's virginity, or lack of it. Duncan Campbell needed Mary Boyd to be a religion-obsessed, lovesick, hallucinatory virgin. If she was not all of these things, he was in trouble. Workman certainly felt that way. Quote, Any man who would employ galvanic excitement to the uterus of a young woman, of whose pregnancy he had even the shadow of suspicion, is, in plain language, no other than a criminal abortionist, and should be allotted his proper place in the world by the side of Notman and other destroyers of life. End quote. As far as Mary Boyd's virginity was concerned, Workman was emphatic on that point too. Quote, Any medical man who, from inspection of the external parts after death in this case, would assert that sexual intercourse had never taken place would be something more and worse than an ass. End quote. The dispute over Mary's body continued. Campbell even went so far as to self-publish a 44-page pamphlet that included transcripts from the coroner's court, his own editorials, press articles, and a strange interview between himself and, quote, Mr. Blank, that cleared him of all wrongdoing. Seriously, this is all true. Check the show notes. Campbell claimed these efforts were, quote, to redeem from foul slander the fair fame of a modest and virtuous young woman, end quote. He had to add, however, that, quote, an even more powerful motive has been to vindicate the sacred cause of the great truth to which I have given my allegiance. I, of course, refer to homeopathy, end quote. The more the debate raged, the less attention was paid to the flesh-and-blood woman at the heart of the scandal. Mary Boyd didn't matter as Mary Boyd. Only certain parts of her were important. Mary Gallagher, our ghost of Griffintown from last season, might have had her head cut off. But deep down, I think that Mary Boyd was the more dismembered woman. A collection of separate body parts rather than an entire person. By August of 1868, most people had forgotten about Mary Boyd and the medical bickering her death and postmortem had created. Joseph Workman remained in his position as the medical superintendent of the Provincial Lunatic Asylum until his retirement in 1875. Today, he's considered the father of Canadian psychiatry. Duncan Campbell continued his medical practice in Toronto until his death in 1878. He remained, until the end, a defender of the medical benefits of galvanism. At the time of this recording, 
my attempts to find out what happened to his son have hit a dead end. Mary Boyd's family disappeared from Canadian census records after 1861. Did Mary's death and public post-mortem drive them away to America, or even back to Ireland? We don't know. And what does the body of Mary Boyd tell us? I'm only just beginning to unpack that question myself. Often, people who hear this story tell me it reminds them of Mary Whitney from Margaret Atwood's novel Alias Grace. For those of you who haven't read it, Mary Whitney was a young maid in Toronto who died from a botched abortion after having an affair with the son of the house. But Mary Whitney was a character in a novel. Mary Boyd was real. I feel I know too much about her body, her ovaries, her vagina, her hymen, or lack of it. I know what she did to herself in her final days and how she died. But someday, as the research continues, I hope I'll learn more about how she lived. And then we can talk about Mary Boyd the person and not just her body. My special thanks to the Canada-UK Foundation and the Eccles Centre for American Studies for awarding me one of their Canadian fellowships at the British Library in 2022. That's when I discovered Mary Boyd's story. I would never have been able to start piecing together the mystery of what happened to her without their amazing encouragement and support. And that's a wrap on Season 2. I hope you've enjoyed exploring these stories of what happened to the Irish and some of their descendants after they arrived in Canada. Many of the events and people we've covered this season are well known, but the Irish angle to their stories often fades into the background. Our goal has been to bring their Irish identities back into the light. And there's still more to come. We will be back with Season 3. A bientôt! Thanks for listening to The Irish in Canada. The show was researched, written, and narrated by me, Jane McGaughy. This season was edited and mixed by Patrick McMaster and produced by Marianne Mulvenna. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kate Bevan Baker, and our logo was designed by Claire McCauley. Many thanks to the School of Irish Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, the Canadian Irish Studies Foundation, Le Gouvernement de Québec, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for their support. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favourite podcast app. You can spread the word about the Irish in Canada by following us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Irish Canada Pod. Our website is the Irish in Canada Podcast.ca. That's where you can find show notes for our episodes, including lists of sources and recommendations for further reading. Until next time, Gora Maogif. <laughs>